2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is TLS commissioning editor, the woman who shares a hobby of tramping about the place with our Prime Minister, Thea Lenarduzzi. As I was thinking about that... Only say,
3: thing we share.
2: Yeah, it doesn't mean you go walking with the Prime no, Minister. No,
3: absolutely not. Although I would like, I'd, I, she'd be in my dust.
2: I would, uh, I'd film that. <laughs> you and Prime Minister Stalking May. Off. Although my experience of Theresa May is, it's virtually impossible to get her to say anything interesting ever yeah, to anyone. I mean, absolutely, she just feed her the lines. Yeah, she would just say strong and stable. You know, you'd say, Oh, look at that that fence we've just walked past. And yeah, it's strong and stable. Well, she, or,
3: I think she can only walk for two and a half miles before she decides you, to go home and call a general election. So. Are
2: you tingling with excitement at the general election?
3: Um, I'm not tingling with excitement. I but I do want it to be over. <laughs> I feel not optimistic. Well. Um, but who does very well, few people. I think. I think there's
2: a theory which is developing in my mind that this could be an election where everybody loses.
3: A hung Parliament.
2: No, well that's possible as well. I mean, virtually, I, I certainly start by saying virtually everything is possible. But here's the thing that could happen: Theresa May could get a small majority, so a failure by her own terms. Yeah. Labour could do slightly better than expected in the sense that the centrist Blairite MPs will be sad they can't oust Corbyn. Corbyn will also do not that well in terms of he won't actually win the election, so but he'll be sad. perhaps
3: better than Ed Miliband. But
2: perhaps better than Ed Miliband. The Lib Dems could be effectively nearly wiped out, so they'll be sad. UKIP could be wiped out, they'll be sad. The SNP have seemed fallible and bearing the scars of being the head of a one-party state for years and years and years. It could be an election where every single party fails.
3: Although if UKIP are wiped off um, the face of written, then we're all winners a little bit.
2: Yeah, unless that leads to a massive Tory majority, which in in this version of events it doesn't. So we shall see and we will talk about it next week. Um, If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one into the offer code section, you can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the podcast this week, we shall consider the future of the essay as a literary form. Brian Dillon has written a book called Essayism, which we have extracted in this week's paper. The essay we publish discusses the ever-failing figure of Cyril Connolly. Brian will be on the line to talk about him. Are we seeing, should we be seeing, the end of definition by gender? And is there any benefit in trying to track physiologically and psychologically the differences between men and women? Difficult questions posed by the lead piece in the TLS this week, written by Carol Tavris. And with very sad timeliness, we shall be asking the question, what does Islam truly mean? After the brutality of Manchester came the horror of London Bridge. We have been urged by the Prime Minister to have embarrassing conversations about this peculiarly contradictory religion. Well, we shall discuss it, but without any embarrassment. Religion editor Rupert Short will be joining us.
3: Feminism and misogyny have been locked in a painful, inextricable embrace for centuries. The ascendancy of one enrages, provokes and energises the other. Each seeks justification for its premises and goals in religion, culture, tradition, and that most solemn of authorities, science. Science, however, being a human enterprise, has a way of serving the ideologies of its practitioners as well as exposing them. So begins our lead piece in this week's paper by the distinguished social psychologist Carol Tavris, which tackles the idea that there is a scientific basis for women's inferiority, or indeed superiority, some biological detail that makes men and women behave in different, if not opposite, ways. That is, some inherent reason for women making better typists and men making better national leaders. Dr Tavris, I think it's fair to say, utterly demolishes that myth as indeed have others before her. So what is perhaps more interesting and more frustrating is that we have to keep addressing these same ideas over and over again, decade after decade. Why do these old ideas keep returning in modern packaging? Dr Tavris joins us on the line from California, where it is very early in the morning. Um, Carol, you you consider a clutch of books in your piece, among them Gavin Evans' provocatively named Map Readers and Multitaskers, and Heath Fogg Davis's uh, Beyond Trans, as well as Angela Saini's Inferior. Can we? I'm wondering if we can we can take part of the subtitle of that last one, "How Science Got Women Wrong," as our jumping-off point. I mean, the story is as old as time itself, but could you, could you maybe run us through some of the more recent major plot developments or, or trends in thinking? <laughs>
4: Major plot developments is quite, <laughs> quite the, way, quite the way to put it. There's always a new plot wrinkle. The book is the same. There's just a different chapter, perhaps, or maybe I should say a different application of the same story. Well, the efforts to justify the status quo in any society, you know, will call upon religion and, in our current times, science to say that this is how things have always been, and this is nature's way, or it's evolution's way now, or it's the brain's way, it's somebody's way that has nothing to do with our social arrangements. And uh, it is an issue that, that recurs the biological reductionist argument, I mean, particularly in conservative and traditional times, to be replaced by efforts to say, there are no differences, forget them, there's nothing that matters, you know, men and women are exactly the same in every possible way, you know, except for Uh, the kind of misogyny that keeps women down. So the pendulum swings with various authors making the case. And what's interesting is that very often it's the same research that's called upon to justify one position or the other. So one says, you know, look look at all these differences that we see in the brain. And then the other side says, oh, please, they're trivial, they're not important. You know, yes, some exist, but they have nothing really to do with how men and women actually behave in their everyday lives. Because how men and women behave in their everyday lives depends far more on opportunities and roles and what the culture and environment encourage and permit. So the argument continues.
3: And evolutionary psychology, the idea that gendered behaviors evolved due to their adaptive benefits. I mean, that must take a lot of the blame.
4: You know, it's so interesting. I, as a dutiful young feminist in the 70s, shared the anti-biology mood of that era. The 70s was the era of second wave feminism as women by the thousands and millions were going into professional schools and going into occupations that had previously been barred to them. And we all hated biology. We thought biology was a sinister plot to keep women down, you know. There was a wonderful sociologist named Alice Rossi who did a fabulous paper called A Biopsychosocial exploration of motherhood. And we wanted the bio out of there. (laughs) There's just no bio in motherhood. So that's how rigid feminists were about biology in those days, and with very good reason, because biological explanations were so much a part of explaining why women couldn't succeed, wouldn't succeed, shouldn't succeed. I do think now, from a scientific perspective, that we are more understanding that this is not an either or debate. No serious scientist in biology or evolution or social science would say any aspect of human behavior is only one thing or the other thing. And that's why Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave, is I think a very important corrective because he shows there's no aspect of our brains or hormones or neurons or anything that is not deeply shaped and affected by learning culture, environment, and situation.
2: And and can you take that argument so a logical step further, which is that sort of binary approach should be collapsed one stage more by saying there's no such thing as male and female gender as absolutes. That actually we live in a world where there's just a spectrum of different gender identities and people stop off along the way. And actually even trying to start with the basic opposition of man versus woman, male versus female is itself too binary an approach?
4: Well, isn't that interesting? That seems, feels like the next frontier, doesn't it? An issue that once would have been thought impossible, astonishing. Um, we have, what, a tiny, tiny percentage of people who are born with sexual attributes of both sexes. It's a tiny, tiny number. Uh, you know, what does transgender even mean? And look how fast this issue is speeding along i find it absolutely fascinating and do you support it is good is it a, good, is it a, good, generation, is it a good thing
2: is it a good thing is it sort of healthful actually that that, that this is advancing so quickly
4: <laughs> is it a good thing yeah. there is nothing that is ever a good thing or a bad thi- well I, I i exaggerate it's of <laughs> of course it's a good thing in terms of people's uh, mm, flexibility and health. And I, I find it very interesting that on um, university campuses, this is a the trans issue. It's a done deal. It's just a done deal. It's where things are. It's where things are going. Uh, sexual orientation flexibility, sexual behavior flexibility. I might try having sex with this person this week and the other sex the next week. Uh, this, this is all behavior and identity issues that are absolutely baffling to older generations. But then so were gay rights, and so was gay marriage, and so was the idea of a female politician or general. So I think what we're seeing is an extraordinary sea change in our notions of gender and what is appropriate or not for gender. My mentor in the 1970s was an anthropologist named Marvin Harris. I'm mentor. I mean somebody who influenced me a great deal. And he, I did an interview with him for a magazine a long time ago in which he said, male supremacy was just a phase in the evolution of culture. I said, a phase? (laughs) A thousands-of-year-old phase? Typical man. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a funny remark. He said, well, male supremacy was based on two things, uh, the inability of women to control fertility and greater male physical strength in war. So these two things produced the need to separate the sexes by activity and status, but they are gone, he said. We will see in the 21st century. Those things are gone when you can control fertility and when uh, warfare becomes a, not a matter of hand-to-hand combat, but technology. And what are we going to see? Women entering the military, men entering family life more, control over the decision of when and how many children to have. And we're going to see greater movements for equality all over the world.
3: Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, if we, if we move beyond a binaries and end up with however many stages on on a spectrum. I mean, you mentioned a book by Iris Bonet, which I find interesting in, in that it suggests a way that we might, that might all be translated and worked with in reality, her book Gender Equity by Design. She comes at everything from a different angle, but it's, it's a compelling proposition. I was wondering if you can sort of tell us what that is. It's, it's basically blind casting for everything.
4: Blind casting for everything. Well, see, it's very, what, here's the interesting uh, approach about it. You know, typically many of the sex differences books have been designed to say we must rid ourselves of our stereotypes or else they say, no, our stereotypes are valid because they're built into our brains. And that's kind of the argument. What social psychologists, that's my profession, She is borrowing from our profession, without a license, by the way. (laughs) But but the idea is that you cannot sit around and wait for people to have changes of heart, you know, to become fairer, let's say. And if you do, if you wait for people to get rid of the stereotypes in their heads, I mean, not not a bad goal, of course, but we get rid of stereotypes in our heads by observing behavioral changes in people and in our worlds. We don't just sit there and say, okay, I think I will become less prejudiced toward men now or toward women. We see how men and women's behavior changes when they're in situations that encourage different behavior. I mean, one of the most fascinating things to me has been watching the transformation of men as dads and uh, as partners in the home, uh, as well as women entering occupations they formerly couldn't. So what Iris Blonet is basically saying is, If you go to a conductor or a business executive, say, and you say, look at this study showing how prejudiced you are against women, you won't admit them, you think they're not as good, you say you would hire uh, as many women as men, but look, if we send out the same resumes and we vary only the name on the resume, they're identical, otherwise you're going to choose the guy and not the girl, right? People are not going to say... Why, thank you so much for pointing out to me that I'm biased. <laughs> you know, They're going to give you a justification for their decision to discriminate. But when they can't, when they can't, that's what she found in her study, in her, well, her observation about what it took to undo gender prejudice in orchestras. Blind auditions. This way, the conductors were faced with the clear evidence that they were wrong in their notion that women weren't as good. And so that is an approach that basically says, let's change the circumstances and opportunities that we give our women and men.
2: And it's hard to argue with that, Carol, isn't it? Because um, I'm struggling, you know, I had a, a magazine where we have female and male reviewers and one of the things i'm constantly trying to do is achieve a balance between the two and we always have conversations what why are people commission more male reviewers than female reviewers and they unquestionably do and is the answer that's because they've been conditioned in that way or is that because it's easier because they've been doing it for years and is the answer the solution to say find a world where you're not even aware of a distinction and therefore you can't possibly be prejudiced
4: Oh, well, that would be interesting, send in blind reviews. Yeah. <laughs> Except that you can't, you can't operate commission, that You can't commission
2: blindly, can you, so it doesn't work? You can't work. commission blindly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly
4: right. You can't commission blindly. Although, uh, if uh, Heath Davis would have his way, we, we none of us will know what anybody is. I mean, I think that's uh, probably a, an unlikely, if not even a preposterous, goal. But, Stig, you make a different point, which is that it's not prejudice. And it's not biased for any of us to feel more familiar with and comfortable with people who are like us. We are a tribal species, and that's one of the interesting things about the differences between people who live in big cities, where the tribe gets expanded outward. Look at the brilliance of London following this latest awful attack. Uh, the identity is Londoners, we Londoners, not we white or we brown or we yeah. something, you know. But in areas where you have less diversity of ethnicity or religion or so forth, there's a greater mm, feeling of safety and security among our own kind.
2: Right? And there's a question, Carol, that Does things, do things get better? Because Martin Amis, I remember talking about race, said, um, my grandfather was more racist than my dad. My dad was more racist than I am. My kids will be less racist than I am. And there's this sort of progression, this progression of civilization. What's striking uh, in many ways about your piece and some of the issues you're reflecting on now is that, can you make an argument, are we getting progressively better? Are we getting less caught up on gender differences and less institutionalised in, in, in what we consider to be applicable and acceptable for those genders? Do you see progress at all?
4: Ah. Uh... Uh, The progress question, (laughs) right. Um, (laughs) Yes, of course I see progress. We have vastly improved in our notions of gender fairness in a way even the most misogynist among us would accept. So yes, of course there's been progress. But I think we must be vigilant (laughs) about this because progress is not linear. As we certainly ought to know from our human history, when circumstances get dire, when economies fail, when jobs are scarce, as the planet warms, as wars emerge, it is very easy for us to regress to old ways and old justifications for those ways. No one would have predicted the venom toward Jews in uh, Nazi Germany. Jews were assimilated during the 20s. Everybody thought, look at the progress here. We've eradicated anti-Semitism in Germany. So I think every culture has a fault line. Every culture is vulnerable to scapegoating and stereotyping when it is feeling besieged and under threat. So vigilance is the price of equality, And by the way, I mean, as we see in my poor, sad country today, uh, when Trump was elected, he turned over a rock, and every ugly, racist, misogynist roach crawled out from under it. This was really surprising to so many people who had been thinking of progress in America as linear.
2: And indeed, what's striking, I think, interesting, is you had a black president, Mm -hmm. therefore there must be progress. And I'm interested in gender, you know, we we had a, a, a female prime minister here in the 80s, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who arguably didn't advance the cause of women that much. We've got a female prime minister now. And if you look at Europe, you know, Merkel uh, in Germany, a lot of them in, in, in Britain today, a lot of the power, most powerful people, the head of our police force here in London, who led the response to the terror attack, is a woman. The prime minister is a woman. Do those sort of totemic positions make any difference at all, do you think?
4: <laughs> well... In every occupation, you must have the first woman something, right? The first woman something takes all the heat of being a woman. So if her, you know, whatever she does, if she succeeds, it's because of her womanly qualities. If she fails, it's because of her womanly failings. All eyes are on her, and her success or failure will be attributed to something about her as a woman. As soon as you have 10 female leaders in a row in a place or, uh, you know, or three or something where, you, where people can see the variation of personality across women as we see among men then you stop focusing on the gender as the explanation of anything. So, for example, the old inversion of the stereotype, we need women leaders because they will be better than men leaders. They will be cuter and smarter and nicer and warmer and more compassionate and friendly and so forth. And what do we find? We find that their ideology, their political party, is a better predictor of how they will behave than anything about their gender. So two things are called for. One is that we want equality just because it's fair. (laughs) You don't want to shut out half the human race from any activity. But to say that we want that half in because it's going to transform the world and make everybody nicer, I think maybe we have some evidence that that's not always the case.
2: Carol, we're going to have to leave it there. But uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today so early uh, your time as well. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's been a pleasure there's a lot of, there's a lot to wrestle with here well th- see th- i th- th-
3: i was ready to interrupt purely because i wanted to ask carol and i'll ask you i suppose whether we whether you think that we'll we'll get to a position where uh, blind applications are policy and whether that should be the case, because I can't find an argument, a compelling argument for why they should not
2: be. No, I think it's, I mean, I I think, actually, I was just trying to think it through in terms of our commissioning. I think commissioning is different because you're actually acting, but if it's anything where you are receiving applications, why wouldn't you do it? Well,
3: commissioning is different because what we're doing is we're reflecting the academic world what you would need is is a policy whereby uh, academic recruitment or whatever recruitment is blind and then that would allow uh, an equalisation to take place and then and we there, would there get those no pictures and we would...
2: Because my argument's always been we should have positive discrimination even though it's unfair because un- it's an unfair method of achieving greater fairness and ultimately you have to kick start as Carol was saying in a slightly different context otherwise you never get anything. But actually, the better answer is not positive discrimination. It's completely blind uh, consideration of everyone's credentials, and I can't possibly see an argument mm. against
3: it. I but, oscillate between the two.
2: Yeah, exactly. And but I mean, why wouldn't you have the la- the latter is probably cleaner than the former, isn't it? To, mm. to say the other thing I'm interested in is, do you believe that people are on a spectrum? I'm very happy. I, I you know I I've met a lot of transgender people in my work, and 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 I, I, very often they've had very difficult lives, and I'm very feel very supportive. Of whatever they want to do, you know, whatever life they want to pursue, I feel hugely supportive of it. But do I therefore believe that gender is not binary, that that there is this spectrum? I don't mind if other people believe it, if that's how they. But when I sort of try and examine myself, do I actually think that there are men and women and women, and they are different? And I suspect I do think that at some you see, level.
3: You think you do? Yeah, I I I I swallow the the spectrum argument personally. I don't see why there wouldn't be. They're all learned behaviours, so...
2: But there are biological differences as
3: well. There are biological differences, but culturally speaking and in behavioural terms, I I believe in the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, I am... clearly no expert (laughs) but that's just i mean this is all this is all such a new it's such new terrain and as carol was saying we're all moving so quickly through this which is incredible really and
2: it's kind of cool that you can actually at least have this because it can be parodied and it can become ridiculous you know facebook with sort of 58 different things and some people get very uncomfortable about that it doesn't bother me because it's just it's just why would it affect my life at all Mm. either way i think it's kind of interesting that at least you can have the conversation about it Mm it's not a crazy conversation to have what's the difference between men and women and is it helpful to look at it in a binary fashion yeah. it seems to be at least intellectually an interesting question Whether, yeah absolutely way... and
3: i mean I, i'm sure it's very annoying of me to say but i'm sort of non-binary about everything i think everything that we ever talk about on this podcast when binaries come up i just sort apart of think, from cheese we need to not we need to not be saying <laughs> apart from it.
2: english versus european <laughs> cheese and, <laughs> well, then the, and then the old binary prejudices come out there <laughs> let's talk about an underrated literary form the essay is it due a comeback or has it never really departed the term itself of course comes from the word to mean an attempt an effort connoting in some ways an idea of thinking aloud or working things out the essay can seem as a form both cerebral and august but also perhaps a little insubstantial something that is occasional and interesting as a piece of intellectual curiosity yet its authors form a proud and inspiring canon Montaigne, Hazlitt, Johnson, Didion, Wolfe and more. What makes a good essay and why do they matter? Well, in A Pleasing Marriage of Form and Subject, Brian Dillon has written a book of essays that discuss the art of essayism, the single word of its title. It is a lovely thing. In the TLS this week, we extract an essay on the subject of Cyril Connolly, that figure shrouded in failure and in consequence, who is a brilliant man of letters, reviewer and essayist, but is somehow never seen to have succeeded as a figure of consequence. Is he a witness for the defence or prosecution in the case of the relevance of the essay? Brian Dillon joins us now. Brian, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Let's talk a bit about Cyril Connolly uh, to begin with. What does he mean to you as a, as a figure?
5: I think that uh, Connolly, who uh, I describe midway through my book, is, is almost, as you've already uh, hinted, I think a sort of test case for the essay in the past century or so. On the one hand, his book, The Unquiet Grave, which was first published in 1944 under the imprint of Horizon, the magazine that he edited, is an attempt to mimic the aphoristic and essayistic writing of people like Montaigne, Pascal, La Rochefoucauld, and so on. And at times it really attains a kind of profundity. It's a book that's written out of the war. He wrote it in 42 and 43. It comes out of an experience that by the end of the war, he's referring already to as, as angst, you know, a term that becomes very modish in the, yeah. in, in the 50s. And so it's a serious book. And on the other hand, it's absurd. It's a book of gags. One of the most famous jokes in that book is, inside every fat man, there's a thin man wildly signaling to get out. So he's addicted to one-liners. And uh, again, as you, you said in your introduction, he's, he's addicted to a kind of inconsequence. It's a book about melancholy. It's a book about depression. It's a book about a kind of feeling of historical exhaustion and weariness. And it's also a book about his failure to get out of bed in the morning, uh, his addiction to long, hot baths, uh, his interest in the quince as a fruit and many other foodstuffs, um, and, and his ongoing battles with, with drink and, uh, and drugs. And so it's this odd mixture for me. Um, of uh, a real ambition at the, the level of content. That's a very endearing to me, admission of certain failures as an individual and as a writer. But then also, very excitingly, uh, a very strange, I think, for that moment, just post-war, a very strange experiment with the form. It's a book of fragments, of quotations, of small essayistic uh, forays and, and experiments. A lot of reviewers at the time could barely... Accept that it was a book at
2: all. I love the fact that the TLS, which is absolutely trademark grumpiness of on our part, dismissed it as bleak silliness. But Hemingway, as you quote in the piece, said it's almost—he was almost sure it will be a classic, whatever that means. So it, it, divided, it divided opinion then when it came out.
5: It absolutely did. I mean, one of the things that I think annoyed certain people, including Connolly's uh, on and off friend uh, Evelyn Waugh, was. A certain kind of preciousness. And I suppose that, you know, he's used his constant use of words like exquisite and beautiful. And that preciousness, I think, and this is why I say in a way for me, it's a kind of test of the essay form, is I think one of the directions that the essay goes historically. It aspires to to something well made, uh, to a kind of, to use a terribly old-fashioned phrase, fine writing. And there's something... Both kind of satisfying about that when it's brought off very well, you know, when when an essay feels polished uh, and achieved and attained. But there's something almost nauseating about it at times as well. And I think that a really great essayist is somebody who is constantly wrestling with that tension between wanting to make something wrought and fully formed, and on the other hand, wanting to disperse and dissolve and explode that form.
2: And will an essay, I mean Conley's a really good example of this, will, he, will an essayist who is and I use the term kind of advice, only an essayist or primarily an essayist, be always regarded as somehow failing in the literary world because they write essays rather than in inverted commas, proper books. There's this kind of distinction between a, a novelist or someone who writes biographies, proper books, substantial books, and an essays feeling that like it's an insubstantial cousin of that.
5: I think that there there is a sense, I suppose, that um, the essay is something that uh, a poet or a novelist does uh, on the side and that every decade or so uh, the great writer packages together his or her occasional pieces and uh, and publishes that with with essays as the the subtitle. Um, There's something slightly disreputable disreputable about that, but I think that it's a a modern prejudice. It's a prejudice of the last hundred years or so. If one goes back to the 19th century and you think about the the writers who were most valued from the century before, the writers who were elevated as examples of of English prose and moral thought, Johnson and uh, Addison and Steele and The Spectator and so on, in a way there was a kind of moment in the history of English literature when the essay was really predominant, when the essay seemed like the most profound and the most stylish literary form, I think that there was an interim where it was in abeyance and it was slightly uh, disreputable, partly, of course, because uh, it arises so often out of journalism. And you think about, you know, De Quincey, Thomas De Quincey, who's one of one of my absolute uh, favourites, who never wrote anything that he where he wasn't paid by the word. You know, (laughs) the the periodical essay allowed De Quincey to become a writer whose complete works run to twenty one volumes. Nowadays I think there is something of a resurgence of the essay and I think that that's why I was interested in, in writing the book and, and tracing I suppose or trying to describe the kind of constellation of essayists who of course there are the great figures like Montaigne and so on but then there are also these relatively minor figures like Connolly and I wanted in a way to kind of we plot that history of
3: the essay. I'm wondering, in a sense, I mean, you mention um, melancholy. You're, you mean your essay on Connolly is something of an ode to indolence, but I mean, melancholy is the thing that kind of comes to the fore. This existential unease uh, that causes that, and Thomas Brown, uh, as you said, looms looms large. I'm wondering if there's something kind of inherently melancholic about the essay form, or something that makes those of a more melancholic nature drawn to reading and writing essays. Is something about it, it being a more circuitous lingering route to whatever one might be getting at?
5: I suppose there there is a sense that the essay doesn't know where it's going, um, that it it is uh, an attempt, a kind of tryout, a trial. And so there is a kind of sense that it's always courting failure, I suppose. And maybe there is something in the melancholic temperament that finds that as a form kind of conducive. Uh, There's also, of course, historically, a kind of radical... Subjectivism, you know, we the, one of the cliches about the essay is that it always starts from an I. It says I. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily true, but I think the essay mm-hmm. might be a form in which it's possible to get away with a kind of subjectivism, or even, you know, in the case of Connolly, a kind of uh, absolute self-pity. Um, that that's not quite possible in other. And also
2: perhaps a lack of structure, even. You know, the indolence aspect, I think, is interesting, where, where where in an essay, which can be, as you say, from very subjective, you're almost forgiven and allowed to meander, which to, to, to an indolent writer, to a writer who doesn't want to go through the kind of horrendous process of, of putting together a novel of 500 pages or, or a non-fiction work of, of the same, there's a there's a sense that you, you you're allowed to meander a bit more. Is that fair, do you think? I
5: think that's fair, but up up to a point, if you think about something like Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, which is is in some ways is an essay in itself and in some ways is a collection uh, of of shorter fragmentary pieces, it just keeps swelling over over at least a decade. Burton keeps adding to it. There's something oddly unstoppable and workaholic about the essayistic temperament at the same time. But I think we shouldn't forget that, of course, the, the essay has a long tradition of being not indolent, not lazy, not not uh, haphazard in its form or its approach to the world, but being absolutely precise. You know, the, the essay yeah. is an opportunity to look very, very closely at one detail of the world, whether that's a detail of one's own experience, the natural world or a work of art or a work of literature. There's something I think absolutely essential to do with concentration and attention.
2: Is there a, uh, I'm interested in the, the geographical um, spread of it now. And maybe this is connected to your view of journalism. I mean, British journalism is not regarded as a reputable uh, profession in the way that American journalism is. You know, American journalists are often seen as writers. And Is that the reason why perhaps we might consider the essay form to be more American than British now? I think the,
5: the, the kind of serious and more journalistic discourse now on the essay and a sense that the essay has returned in the last decade or so is really going on in, in America. And I think, I think I agree that that's partly because journalism is taken more seriously as a, as a calling, as a profession, um, as a craft. I think it's partly also because American journalism has such a, has such a strong tradition of, of editing as also in itself a craft uh-huh. and a calling. And so it's possible for writers to be kind of mentored and, uh, and encouraged and for an editor to see the kind of broad spread of what, a, uh, especially, say, a younger essayist or journalist does as part of a an ongoing kind of and growing, swelling body of work. So when I think about the essay now, uh, and I think about writers like uh, Maggie Nelson, Rebecca Solnit, Wayne Kustenbaum, and poets as well, poets who are essays like Anne Carson, there's a slightly older generation, people my age in their 40s or so, who I think provide a kind of map for where the essay might be going that's been picked up, I think, by a lot of younger American writers. It would be great to think that resurgence of the essay is also underway in this country, and I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about that, I think.
3: How does one how does one go about nurturing that though? I mean, is it is it just a, a rejigging of, of what we value in our newspapers in our magazines? I mean,
2: you need successful journals like the Times Literary Supplement to well, nurture
3: this. That's, don't what you. that's what I'm getting at. I think.
2: You need you you need successful journal,
5: journals like the Times Literary Supplement <laughs> to to make those spaces. Uh, available, I think. And I think that uh, of course, the kind of established uh, literary journals I think in uh, in this country do that to a large extent. It has been hard, I think, at times. I mean, I started writing nonfiction and journalism about 15 years ago, and I, I definitely then didn't feel that the essay was a form that was kind of burgeoning, that was abroad in the world as a thing that one could sort of latch on to. I definitely do feel that now, and I think it's partly to do with um, the success, the kind of totally unpredictable success of small literary magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and in London, it would be something like uh, The White Review. In Ireland, for example, Gorse, a uh, fantastic magazine that publishes fiction, poetry, and great essays. So I think there has been in a, a younger generation who might not be yet be visible in the more established journals there has been a real
2: excitement in, the, in recent years about the essay. Well, listen, it's, it's a, it, I'm very grateful to have the chance to publish your uh, essay on Cyril Connolly uh, and, and the book uh, sounds like a fantastic thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks. Uh, and Brian Dillon's book, Essayism, has been published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. One thing struck me, Thea, is that he named four writers, mm. uh, new writers of essays, three of whom were women. Mm. Is it possible that this could be a form that actually... Skews to female writers, or is a more balanced at least one than than, than perhaps the, the sort of other other ones. I don't know. If I
3: right. I think of it as a very weird, weirdly sort of gender neutral <laughs> form. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I think perhaps because it's quite a free form in a sense, and, and you can you know you can have exactness, preciseness, precision, as um, Brian Dillon was saying. You can also then have more circuitous things, and quite often I think the best ones are the ones that bring those two things together. So you have plenty of suggestions, but for whatever reason, I think I think that seems to amount to women and men indulging it equally.
2: But I suspect that itself might be progress of sorts. That it's yeah. that it's so open and therefore potentially equal. It's not necessarily a female form, but it's a form that has an equal opportunity, which yeah. you can't necessarily say about lots of disciplines. It's not true of history. Yeah. It's not true of classics. It's yeah. not true of uh, a lot of the academy stuff. It's quite clearly skewed in favour often a very old men mm. whereas this form even if it's equal opportunity that itself would be a be a return to the center
3: yeah and it's strange as well because it's it's it feels both modern and so welcoming to people who want to try and do something new try something new out um, and also is 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 you know, steeped in, in ancient tradition and stuff. So and I remember reading, it's a perfect balance. It
2: is, and I remember reading Montaigne for the first time, not in French, and and, and just being slightly blown away by it because it, it feels like something that you would publish today. Mm. It doesn't feel in any way old-fashioned. In the way that, you know, prose prose of the 16th century often mm. feels very labour, very hard mm. to, to, to get through. Whereas when Montaigne, when you read it, he's talking about sort of modern issues... Bringing in personal anecdotes, you know, it has the form and structure of a of a modern, brilliant literary piece of writing.
3: Yeah, I think the best ones are sort of they fall somewhere between prose and kind of persona driven poetry. Yeah, we um, should
2: publish more of them in the TLS.
3: Yeah, exactly. Can I also can I also say? Oh, because I was I was so sad to have to take this out purely for special reasons. Because we were discussing um, the excellent aphorisms in the in the piece, so I just wanted to read you one from from Brian Dillon's essay. Um, that we've just been discussing. It refers to the base mimetic urges urges of certain creatures. Okay. He says, and this is quoting Cyril Connolly, Why do soul and turbot borrow the colours and even the contours of the sea bottom? Out of self-protection? No. Out of (laughs) self-disgust.
2: Oh, my God. That's going to take some unpicking. Brilliant. The self-disgust of the turbot.
3: I mean, we're looking at something that we possibly had never thought about.
2: Everything's always back to food with you. (laughs) Have you noticed that? <laughs> if it's not cheese, it's fish.
1: I hadn't even made the connection. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
2: We're recording this podcast in the news building, which sits above London Bridge Station. On Saturday night, three men drove into people congregated just outside, then leapt out of their hired van with knives, stabbing indiscriminately. Seven people were murdered and many more injured, some seriously. Why did they do it? It's a question with all sorts of angles, including indisputably a religious one. The perpetrators were shouting their devotion to Allah. Their attack has been claimed by Islamic State as one of theirs. The Prime Minister, in a surprisingly political statement, although given the looming election and her faltering campaign perhaps not that surprising, struck a note of finality of no longer pretending that things can continue as they are. Enough, she said, is enough. Theresa May is fond of tautology for rhetorical effect, of course. Brexit means Brexit, being another empty rattle of hers. But she did descend to specifics, one of which related to the single evil ideology of Islamist extremism that preaches hatred, sows division and promotes sectarianism. May believes there's been too much tolerance of extremism in our country and we need a more embarrassing conversation about what it means and how it should be stamped out. A discussion of Islam should not be embarrassing. We shouldn't be afraid to address the martial basis of a religion that manages to inspire peace in the vast majority, but brutality among a relatively small number of its adherents. Thomas Small has reviewed three books that tackle the perplexing contradictions at the heart of the Islamic tradition. One of those contradictions relates to views of its own history, a time of either violent purity or of tolerance and enlightenment, philosophical and psychological adventurousness. A singular problem for Islam is that very few Muslims consciously understand what being Islamic truly means, perhaps especially the Salafist demagogues in places like Saudi Arabia. As small note, Islamic figures can denounce terror attacks as blasphemous atrocities until they are blue in the face. But for the global jihadist camp, such slaughter is perfectly religiously inspired. What does jihad truly mean? Anything from struggle through to violent warfare. For that matter, what does the word Islam mean? Literally, it suggests submission, a term with inevitable martial consequences, but it also has a root connected to the word peace. Reconciliation is not simple. Islam needs either to be rescued by Western modernity, perhaps, or to return to a more accurate sense of its own history. So joining us to discuss all of this is our religion editor who commissioned Small's piece, Rupert Short. Rupert, welcome. Hello. Let's start with this contradiction in Islam's history, which comes out very clearly in the review, and I'm really interested in. Was its past a, a violent and brutish world, the world of the Salafists, or is it one of tolerance and understanding, or both? Both,
6: needless to say, Stig. I um, felt that this review was, was hugely helpful in exposing some of the underground streams of uh this debate, which very rarely gets an airing in the press or or on television in this country. And there's always been a tension within Christianity between the role of faith and reason. It's summed up in an ancient soundbite. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? There's one strand of Christianity that says, look, we have our revelation, we have our holy book, we have the Bible, we don't need anything else. There is another venerable strand uh, I'm pleased to say which is much more open-handed which says well if the world is created by God then we ought to be able to investigate the the book of nature and to embrace in other words Athens in adverted commas representing philosophy secular knowledge science and and all the rest of it. Now what you see in Islam is something very similar. Often the differences, I think, between, in religion can be within a tradition rather than between it. So in the Balkans to Bengal complex, as Thomas Small describes it, of Islam, which embraced the Ottoman and uh, Persian empires, and among other civilizations, there developed a much more open, intellectually curious strand of Islam compared with the Middle East after its initial period of great creativity and in the the later Middle Ages where uh, Islam in the Middle East at any rate started to, to decline a bit. Now, side by side with that, with that general intellectual point, you have an absolutely critical question about the interpretation of scripture and again the parallel with Christianity is very germane. On the more Catholic side of Christianity, the view would be, well, you can't just wrench verses out of the Bible and apply them willy-nilly. You need to look at the character of a whole landscape. Likewise, within Islam, there is, in the classical tradition, the idea that every, every single verse of Scripture is to be seen in a particular way, that there are some verses that are thought to be valid for all time and there are other verses that are to be uh, considered in context. So when you read apparently very bloodthirsty material in the Quran, uh, the the line for example that says kill kill the idolaters, which would include um, Christians as well as other non-Muslims, the classical Muslim tradition will say that applied to the specifics of Muhammad's ministry when the embryonic community was under severe threat. It is not to be seen as applying to the present day like at all.
2: Self-defence. This is an argument that these are, these are uh, rules for self-defence that then get reinterpreted to mean rules for, for, for conquest. Th-
6: that's right. And the, the, the problem brought out very well by Thomas Small and by uh, Shahab uh, Ahmed in, in the, um, the book What is Islam? That is under one of the titles under review, is that there, there is a whole strain of Islam which, owing to recent history, has, has become somewhat sidelined. The Ottoman yoke, as it was seen, was thrown off And that manifested itself from the 18th century onwards in the rise of a different kind of Islam in Saudi Arabia. The the, uh, Salafist, which has certain roots in the tradition, but I I think it's not unfair to describe it as um, ironically rather modern. So that in the same way that fundamentalist Christianity isn't really, traditional at all, starting with the supreme irony that uh, scriptural, in, the doctrine of scriptural infallibility is nowhere to be found in scripture itself. So in a, in a parallel way, the hardliners of Saudi Arabia and the other parts of the world to which their brand of of Islam has been exported owing to the economic might of Saudi Arabia, so it's, it's spread... Uh, all over the world, really, but especially to, to Nigeria and along the 10th parallel of, of latitude, um, including areas like um, Somalia and as far afield as, as the Philippines and Indonesia. But this, and, and Pakistan, this strand of uh, Islam, says so, so, so Ahmed, is not genuinely traditional. So what, what we want is not to sweep away Islamic teaching in the name of modernity, but precisely to, to excavate the tradition.
3: So can you can you tell us what it is that he, because Ahmed advocates a mature Islam, so can you tell us what that is, what would that look like?
6: Well, it's uh, very open culturally. He begins his book with a, a wonderful anecdote about a, a dinner at which a, a Muslim is um, sipping away at his glass of wine and his puzzled neighbour asks, oh, I, I thought you were a Muslim." And he he um, chuckles and says, "My my family have been Muslim for a thousand years, but we are Muslim wine drinkers. You could apply that across the board. There is a tremendous tradition of figurative painting in uh, Persian civilization. If you go to the uh, Alhambra in Spain, you will see sculpture of of, of animals and." various examples of art that one might have thought had been completely banned in an iconoclastic culture. So that's maybe all very well, that, that cultural side of things. I, I think the perhaps the really important thing in terms of where we're standing now and with the, the rise of, of terrorism is to say that the problem with this violence is that it, it, it isn't genuinely islamic i mean you you can say that it it, it's rather like i don't know a catholic committing adultery on the one hand and then piously saying that he won't use contraception on the other it's a complete corruption of a tradition and in the same way that i don't know the knights of the round table would never have sanctioned indiscriminate murder even though that there was a martial element to their to their beliefs I think, in, in theological terms, what we're seeing now is, is, is very much a, a corruption. And I'd, I'd also point to what Thomas says at the end, very, very importantly, that, that violent jihadism represents the, the marriage of Islam and political extremism. We shouldn't forget that these people... Have partly learned their trade from Tamil tigers, from Maoists, from kamikaze pilots.
2: I mean, is, uh, uh, someone put it to me today, which I thought was interesting. Is this the uh, Islamification of a radical, or is it the radicalisation of an Islamic person? That's a,
6: that's a really important point. There's, in fact, a debate going on in France at the moment between two, two perhaps the two leading uh, commentators in this area. So, so Gilles Capel and Olivier. Roy. and Capel, I think, sees the problem as being more theological, with a political twist to it. Hua, uh, who's a sociologist who has gone out to the banlieue, seen the tremendous hardship in which a lot of Muslims are living, is no stranger at all to the you know the sheer levels of social disadvantage, and he he sees the problem as being more political, with a a theological twist to it. I guess
2: the issue, it seems to me, is that when we look to the, as you're talking about, and in some ways, the font and origin of this theology, this extremist theology is Saudi Arabia, and it then goes into Pakistan. And a parallel would therefore be, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury of Islam, or the Pope of Islam? You know, someone who could represent the official, the institutionalised, top-down position. And it seems to me when we're having a debate about the extent to which this is Islam or not Islam, as you go towards that figure of seniority, you are heading towards Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, those areas. So a lot of the font and origin of the religion, in terms of its institution, connects up with people who have a very extremist and, as you say, inaccurate view of what it is. Well, I think I'd
6: say two things about that. First of all, the, the top authority within Sunni Islam is probably in... Um, Egypt, the Al- Al-Azhar Mosque, and the Grand Mufti there, rather than in it's Saudi, not, it's Arabia. Not the Grand Mufti, Saudi Arabia. No. Secondly, it, Islam has never really had the the structures of authority that Christianity does. It's a, it's a more democratic religion on one level. Uh, one of the arguments that you could make against Ahmed is that his version of Islam is quite aristocratic. It relies on being very educated and quite sophisticated and then you find in Sufi Islam likewise a, a sort of idea that we're we're so enlightened we're so advanced we don't really need to, to take too much account of the the basic text one of the reasons why the internet is even more important for Muslims and for, for Christians and other groups I think is precisely this this lack of um, a central source of authority and although various leaders have, been doing their best it's hard to rein the fanatics in when if you like everybody can be their own pope
2: that's interesting
3: in in the absence of a central figure what does that i mean what does that mean for the to reform or not to reform question because we have tarik ramadan whose book is one of the ones under review uh, and he is very pro-reform and then we have shahab ahmed who is very against reform so i mean where would where would the reforming even start who would lead that
6: it's a tricky one. I mean, one of the criticisms that Thomas Small makes of Tariq Ramadan is that it's it's a very um, politically correct brand of Islam, which he seems to avert his gaze from quite a lot of the, the difficult questions. And Ahmed himself doesn't really talk about jihad. We should perhaps shoehorn in a sentence about the genesis of this book Professor Ahmed died in 2015, tragically, at the age of 48, and the book wasn't really quite finished. One of the, the things that uh, Thomas says is that it's, it's very badly written and that it's soaked in uh, post-structuralist jargon, but that nevertheless, because he does have something interesting and important to say, it's, it's worth persevering. I mean, I, I would say as a, as a Christian observer of Islam, that it is a more martial understanding of religion. It's, it's rather hard to, to get away from that. So opportunistic politicians who will say that Salman Abedi, the Manchester bomber, wasn't a, a Muslim, for example, are being pretty disingenuous. When, when Rowan Williams said, Islam is not an inherently violent religion, but it is a faith which sets a great deal of store by victory, Conceived in quite worldly terms, I think that that was right. I mean, it's an imperial, theocratic project. It doesn't mean to say that it can't tolerate minorities. I mean, historically, Muslim societies have been better at um, integrating minorities than Christian ones. Um, Non-Muslims have never been on uh, positions of, of complete equality in Muslim-majority countries, and I think that's that's going to be one of the big challenges in the year ahead. Because in in some
2: ways, I think the question that occurs to me is not why are there such a minority of violent people who use Islam as the framework for their violence? Well, that is an important and interesting question. It seems to me that a slightly more salutary way of thinking about it is this imperial religion, this religion, that this theocracy that has an aspect of jihad, notion of a struggle and conquest, has yet spawned vast, vast numbers of people who live essentially in peace. Yes, well, we shouldn't forget that the Quran
6: is saturated in the language of peace, as, as well as having its, its more martial elements. Number two, I mean, in the Islamic conception of, of world order, there's the notion of the, the Dar al-Islam, the, the is Islamic um, territory, there is also territory which is controlled by non-Muslims. And if you are a Muslim living in a country like uh, Britain or Germany or France or what, what have you, the tradition says that you should submit to the secular authorities, assuming they allow you to practice your religion. You should just get on and be a, an active um, citizen submitting to, to the laws of the land. And one, one of the things that I, I find so puzzling, I mean, notwithstanding, of course, that one can link a lot of the strife in the Middle East with Western foreign policy. Also, it has to be said, with a century of corrupt government and other difficulties. But it it amazes me that people like Salman Abedi, whose family uh, were given sanctuary by Britain, why they should have bitten the hand that that fed them, effectively.
2: And the question then is, is is, is it someone who is a messed up, foolish, weak, malign even individual who was going to find expression for that malignancy in some form was caught up and islamified but they were already there or was there something about the islamic context of their understanding of of their religion that pushed them in that direction
6: well if we're talking again about the parallels with christianity Let's just look for a moment at the split that you find in a country like Pakistan between the, the Barelvis and the Deobandis. The Barelvis have forms of worship which would be familiar in other traditions. They venerate saints, they go on pilgrimage. It's it's quite a laid back strand of Islam in some ways, with with certain parallels with, with Christianity. Before the civil war in, in Syria, it was not unknown for Muslims and Christians to go on pilgrimage together. There is an enormous uh, statue, I'm not sure if it's still there, but there certainly was a, a large statue of uh, John the Baptist in, in Damascus, who is venerated by many Muslims. Contrast that in Pakistan with the Deobandis, who are much more Puritan and hardline. Now, I was listening on the radio recently to a British guy, second-generation Muslim, who was brought up going to a Baralvi mosque. But then his brand of teenage rebellion was to grow a beard, to start criticising his mother for not wearing a headscarf, and to go to the other mosque that was down the road. We're we're talking, as, as so often, with not only with religion but with with other forms of uh, kinship bond with,
2: with identity as much as theology. Well, Rupert, thank you. That's all. So, I mean, I could talk about this for you. I think this is, a, I mean, this is the issue in many ways of our age, and we're not going to get to the bottom of it now. But um, uh, Rupert Short, thank you very much for joining us. And um, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Rupert, to Carol Tavris and Brian Dillon. Do go to the dash tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which also has a special feature on American constitutional history. It's more interesting than it sounds, I promise. And a celebration of London as a spiritual place, which felt relevant this week do tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts and please do review us on itunes next week we will have had an election in this poor benighted land because we couldn't get anyone better i will be writing a piece about the outcome and fear and i will be talking about it until then from the two of us goodbye